Amen, amen. You ready to go through another foundations meeting? So, we're doing chapters 10, 11, and 12 tonight. Our title tonight is Advisors and Adversity. So we've been on kind of an incredible journey through the Devari Ha Yamim. This is, of course, what the Jewish nation calls what you and I know as the books of First and Second Chronicles. We've uh, been observing the days of history of the kingdom of God on earth from Saul right up into the present. Tonight is going to mark a distinct turning point that is necessary to grasp in order to properly understand the message and the scope of the Bible in all of your future studies. Uh, I have a slide that we'd like to show you. Our overview of Chronicles. We've been in Chronicles together for quite some time, and we just want to refresh your memory a bit tonight. Yeah. So, 1 through 9 in First Chronicles are chapters covered genealogies. Now, I know when you hear the word genealogies, your heart leaps and says, yes, that's what I would like to study. But we saw how Ezra took us from Adam and the original promises of God to the fulfillment in David. He wanted us to understand God's connected plan. Number two, with David's reign. That was covered from chapter 10 to 29. Then number three, we pick up in 2 Chronicles, which is one book in the Hebrew Bible, with the reign of Solomon. Now we are entering a new phase. We're going to be covering the Davidic dynasty and those who carried the torch after Solomon had left. As you know, the chronicler's emphasis on the priestly and Levitical orders, as well as the God-ordained dynasty of David, is going to be covered, as opposed to First and Second Kings, which covers more gritty political records and intrigues that are happening between warring factions, the northern and southern houses. Tonight, we want to dive into the division, the civil war, and how it came to being with you this evening. Tonight, we'll be, you will become acquainted with the cost of compromise, the intricacies as well as complexities created in sinful environments. You will also discover the varied meanings of terms such as Ephraim, Judah, Israel, Joseph, and even the word Jew. This is often determined by historical context and literary emphasis. Becoming accustomed to these things will help you avoid grievous, somebody say grievous. Grievous. Grievous errors in interpretation in your future studies. Now, as you might have imagined, the Holy Spirit has been faithful to our congregation, hasn't it? Oh, yes. yes. He's been highlighting some indispensable truths that will serve you as an aid against the dark arts of our satanic opposition. Let's review an important graphic before we get into the text. This is our chiastic structure, and we found this in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. This is given at the point of the initial blessing of unparalleled wisdom in Solomon's life. This was at the point where he was receiving his wisdom from God, and it may be the wisest thing he ever said. Yeah. If you haven't already, I think you should know, and you probably are 
pretty aware of this at this point. You should commit this principle to your understanding. We've been repping this over and over. It is literally a means of recovery from the inevitable error that you are certain to encounter in your journey with the Lord. Did you hear that? Yes. Certain to encounter. Unfortunately, that you will sin is certain. How long have you gone without sinning in your walk? Don't answer that out loud. <laughs> that you know of. It is certain that you will sin. How you deal with your fa failure is uncertain and completely up to you. This is all about how you deal with that inevitable truth. Tonight we will pray that you will decide in advance what your response must be. This will avoid preventable calamity in you and your future generations. Amen. Does that make you want to pray? Yes. Yeah. Makes me want to pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to study your holy word. Lord, we are drawn to your goodness. And we are faced with the dilemma of an unholy and imperfect people meeting with a holy and perfect God. So we ask that you would renew your image in us tonight. Lord, that when we look into your word, we would see the man that you have called us to be. We also ask that you would lead us by your spirit of holiness. Lord, that you would instruct us and direct us in your word. That we might partner with you with your will on earth. Father, we want to stand before your throne as sons. And sons is what you have called us. So sons is what we must be. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I'd like to invite one sexy grandma to read 2 Chronicles 10, 11, and 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and all of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Come back to me in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if you will be kind to these people and please them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders and gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell the people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered them harshly, rejected the advice of the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. 
So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from God, to fulfill the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, although Ahijah the Shulamite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered to the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So all the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adonrayan, who was in charge of forced labor, but the Israelites stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men to make war against Israel and to regain the kingdom of Rehoboam. But this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the Israelites in Judah and Benjamin, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back from marching against Jeroboam. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built up towns for defense in Judah. Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Beth-Zur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marashah, Ziph, Adoram, Lachish, Azekiah, Zorah, Ajalon, and Hebron. They were fortified cities in Jerusalem and Benjamin. He strengthened their defenses and put commanders in them with supplies of food, olive oil, and wine. He put up shields and spears in all the cities and made them very strong. So Judah and Benjamin were his. The priests and Levites from their districts throughout Israel sided with him. The Levites even abandoned their pasture land and property and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests of the Lord. And he had appointed his own priests for the high place and for the goat and calf idols he made. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, their God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, three years walking in the ways of David and Solomon during this time. Rehoboam married Mahalah, who was the daughter of David, son of Jeremoth, and of Ahihel, the daughter of Jesse's son, Eliah. She bore him sons, Jeush, Sheremiah, and Zaham. Then he married Makah, daughter of Absalom, who bore him Abijah, Atiah, Ziza, and Shelimoth. Rehoboam loved Makah, daughter of Absalom, more than any other wives and concubines, and all he had 18 wives and 60 concubines, 28 sons and 60 daughters. Rehoboam appointed Abisha, son of Makah, to be the chief prince among his brothers in order to make him king. He acted wisely, dispersing some of his sons throughout the districts of Judah and Benjamin and to all the fortified cities. He gave them abundant provisions and took many wives for them. After Rehoboam's position as king was established, he and his he had become strong. He and all of Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. 
because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. Shishai, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and the innumerable troops of Libyan, Sukites, and Cushites that came with him from Egypt. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you, Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, they will however, become subject to him, so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. When Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards went with him, bearing the shields, and afterwards they returned to the guard room. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. King Rehoboam established himself firmly in Jerusalem and continued as king. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city, the city the Lord had chosen, set out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. As for the event, events of Rehoboam's reign from beginning to end, they are not written in the records of Shemaiah, the prophet, and of Iddo the seer that the deal with Iddo the seer that deal with genealogies. There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abisha was son, his son succeeded him as king. Wow! I mean, you got to watch out for those suckites. I met some of those guys in. Uh the state of Washington not that long ago. And poor Ido the seer. His prophecies had to do with genealogies. 50% right. It'll be a boy, no, it'll be a girl. I mean, uh, you're reading something that is, 20, it was written 2,500 years ago, and it's taking place 3,000 years ago. And yet you're going to find out it's entirely applicable to everybody in this room tonight. I love that about the Word of God. How about you? We're going to pick up with Justin Linton reading the 10th chapter in verses 1 through 4. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Zebat, heard this, he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and all Israel went to Rehoboam and said, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke you put on us, and, and we will serve you. Wow. During the system of tribal warfare that happens to us every four years in November, you ought to be 
getting a little bit of a taste of this. This is what the Democratic and Republican National Conventions look like right here. Everybody promising better schools and less taxation and nobody's telling the truth. In our first four verses, we have literally reached the precipice of disaster. I felt like that in the four minutes of a, a particular nominee's speech the other night. But I think I was one of about 100 people in the nation watching it, so it didn't really matter, does it? I want to show you a slide of the monarchy that you've seen before and emphasize to you that we have moved on from David's reign to Solomon's reign, and where you see that red dotted line, we're now about to enter into a time period of continual civil war between a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. We're reading in 2 Chronicles, but the book of 1 and 2 Kings covers the same material. Chronicles is covering it from Ezra's perspective and focusing on things like there is some good in Judah, reminding you that in the middle of a dismal situation, God's promises are not failing. That's an important perspective for you to keep. And you might want to hang on to that truth for yourself because tonight is going to hit like a sledgehammer. Uh, we have another slide for you. Summary of the two kingdoms. You guys have seen this before. We want you to kind of get a feel for the shape of the two powers here, what their entities were like, what the course of their existence. The northern kingdom Israel had 19 different kings and reigned for about 250 years. Now... 19 kings that were split up between seven different dynasties. They went into captivity under the Assyrians in 1721, and that power, the northern kingdom, never returned. Southern kingdom, 20 kings that reigned over 370 years with a singular dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. They went into captivity at 606 B.C. and were there for 70 years before they returned. This is the primary background of the dynasty of the king who's coming to rule the entire earth. Yeah. Listen, when you're looking at these two kingdoms, there is not, neither one of them are without sin. But there is a different trajectory oh, yes. between the two kingdoms and where they land and where they end up. Yes. This is the kind of tenor that we're going to see from Ezra's perspective all the way up to the end when he gives us a glimmer of hope. Now, I want to show you another slide, and this is the shape of what the two houses of power looked like through the centuries. You see at the very bottom, there's a white box. Those are the kings that did good before God. In the gray box, those are the kings that were in the gray area. They did good and evil. What color is that box on the bottom? Red. Good. I just wanted to make sure I didn't say the wrong color. You know I'm colorblind. If you would notice... The right side are the kings of Israel. That's a lot of red, isn't it? Yes. In this chronological list, those kings didn't do very well. You see the left side and you see more gray areas and there's a few righteous kings. The northern kingdom lasted roughly 250 years and was defined by doing evil. The southern kingdom was defined by a cycle of sin and repentance. Thank God there was repentance there. Amen. It was conquered by Babylon after about 350 years. But it returned in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Whenever the Babylonian captivity came back, that was largely the southern kingdom, and they returned. Now the New Testament period is largely dealing with the southern kingdom. 
those that came back from the exile. As we get into major players tonight, we want to show you another slide. This is background on Rehoboam. Now, we pulled this right out of Ancestry.com. Yeah, we were, we were fortunate that among Ohad's belongings, we found an actual hair left over from Rehoboam's day. And uh, after having it tested, this is what we found. So you can see David and uh, Bathsheba at the top of the screen. These are the ancestors of Rehoboam. David and Bathsheba produced Solomon. Solomon and Nema, the Ammonite, produced Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is going to be the first king in the line of the kings of Judah. And he's going to preside over a divisive rift that only Messiah will be able to heal. It's impossible to understand the book of Ezekiel without knowing this history and knowing what Ezekiel is talking about healing. There's another major figure tonight. The other major figure is Jeroboam. So Jeroboam is going to come into play in this story and in increasing fashion will be referred to because of the actions that he commits. So you look at this. You see Solomon in this top left-hand corner yeah. here? Yeah. He is not related to Nebat and not related to Jeroboam. He was an official of Solomon. We know very little about Jeroboam's family background, but he is not related in any way, shape, or regard to Judah. He's from Ephraim. He's a part of the northern. His family heritage is all right there. But what we do want you to know is how he came into the story, why this guy is important, because Ezra doesn't really talk about it. So we're going to look at a couple select passages in the Kings together to give you an idea of who Rehoboam is interacting with. Sound good? Yeah. 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 Yes. Cody, would you get 1 Kings 11? I'm going to have you read 28 through 33. Then Gabriel, get 1 Kings 11, just a little further down, get verse 40. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did, how the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. All right, so pause for just a moment. What we know from this point is that Jeroboam is young while Solomon is alive. But apparently he was good at his work, and he was appointed to a kind of office. Now that he's leaving the city and he's out in the country, alone, somebody's bringing him a message. The Hebrew word behind this is uh, roughly translated teamster, <laughs> union boss. That was a joke. I'm sorry. Y'all are from the South. We don't have union issues here because we're blessed in the free state of Texas. Republic. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, you will have one tribe. Now, there are a lot of things you could take from this. One is that Ahijah was massively strong. If you've ever tried to tear a new piece of clothing, it's not easy. But probably 
More likely than that is that in the midst of discipline, God is only willing to go so far with the nation that he has established and the dynasty that he has established. He's promising that there will always be a remnant. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Asherah, the goddess of Sidonians, Mm. Chemish, the god of Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Amorites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. So it's a longer discussion, and we're not going to go into it this evening. The gods that are named relate to wives that Solomon had and things that were brought into the kingdom. And those compromises are starting to come home to roost. But God is having mercy on the house of David because of the covenant that he made. There's a very good reason that they had this discussion out in the country. Solomon was obviously not very happy when he hears about this. In fact, Justin's going to tell us about his response. Would you read that for him? Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. Now, you can imagine what Solomon was feeling there. Obviously, he wasn't very happy. I mean, he was told that he would have a man on the throne forever, and yet there's about to be a split. So then Jeroboam is a kind of union leader that God is going to use to discipline the house of Solomon for veering from the righteous ways of David. It doesn't mean, though, that Jeroboam is remotely godly. Not at all. God is just using him for a very specific purpose because God had a plan because of what Solomon did. Tonight, we will see that almost everyone at fault, everyone is at fault, but the house that God established will stand because of the promises of God. Oh, come on. He promised that David will have a man on the throne forever, and he doesn't remove them completely. Rehoboam is destined by God to endure discipline, but his kingship and dynasty are established by God. Say established. 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 Jeroboam is an instrument of discipline, but will not produce Messiah and is not intended to be a lasting dynasty. Dynasty. That's why in the northern kingdom we see 19 different families running that nation. Like most civil wars, the primary point of contention is taxation, slavery. So let's pick up in the text and read verse 5. Rehoboam answered, come back to me in three days. So the people went away. You know, it's truly amazing in the scripture to see how three days is the distance between life and death. They're going to come back in three days and hear an answer. How crucial is it to give the right answer? The wrong answer could be the death of a nation. But he has an opportunity to give the right nation. The right answer. If you were put in that situation, how much would you seek the Lord? You've got three days, the distance between life life and death, and nations are hanging in the balance. You think you would seek the Lord, right? Yes. Yes. Well, let's continue in our text. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked? You know, that seems like such a wise thing. And if you're consulting our elders, it would be. But these elders had been serving during the lifetime of Solomon. These are the same elders that were there while Solomon was marrying foreign women and heaping up consequence that was unseen in his lifetime and visited on the next generation. Volumes of commentaries and endless sermons have directed us to look at whose advice was right. It reminds me so much of the interactions with Jesus and the disciples. 
Was this man born this way because of his sin or his parents' sin? It's almost like we have such a myopic view of the scripture, we're incapable of coming to the conclusion that no one was right, which is almost always the right answer. (laughs) Ironically, the kind of contrasting that we see between their advice usually yields some sort of sermon that is directed at the older advisors being preferable to the younger advisors. That's the only way I've ever heard it taught. I've heard people in this room teach it that way and with all politeness. You're wrong. (laughs) The astounding truth that you have to come to as you're looking at this biblically tonight is that neither group is right. I want you to consider a few passages so that you can be aided in overcoming the mainstream mistake that almost all people make regarding this passage. Because you're clearly wrong. And this will help you see why. Uh, Judah, would you hand out these passages? Sure. Abambola, will you get Psalm 73, 20 through, 23 through 24? Nick, if you get Proverbs 8, 13 through 17. Elder Baj, if you wouldn't mind, Jeremiah 23, 16 through 22. Emmy, Exodus 32, 13 through 14. Let's see. Caleb, Jeremiah 26, verse 3. And we'll pick up after that. Psalm 73, verses 23 through 24. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you would take me into glory. Look, Rehoboam had three days to seek the advice of the Lord. Our God is able to raise the dead in three days. Surely he's able to advise the king of the dynasty that he's established to rule the earth in those same three days. But this man is lazy. He doesn't go seek the face of the Lord. He goes to seek the face of counselors. Counselors who succeeded in reigning for 40 years with a compromised king that married everything that didn't stand on four feet. What this psalm teaches us is that it is the counsel of God that leads us into glory. He guides us with his counsel. I'm not suggesting that it can't come through elders, but notice that the elders do not go seek the face of God. And their advice is demonstrably wrong. No matter how many sermons you hear on it, it will not make their advice right. It is only preferable when you consider how bad the younger men's advice was. So we're faced with a situation where two groups of counselors neither know what they're talking about. It's like listening to Job's friends and preferring one over the other, and none of them have sought the face of God. That's an important context for you to get as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Who has Proverbs 8? I do. Proverbs 8, 13 through 17. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. Wow. Evil behavior and perverse speech. All right, we just got to pause there for a minute. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then he lets you know that the Lord hates pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. You cannot be walking around in pride and arrogance and actually fear the Lord. Those two things do not comply and it's a part of seeking his face coming near him. It's worth us seeking 
the face of God, getting counsel from those that represent God, and asking him to help us refine that. All too often, we're walking around in pride and arrogance, and we are the only ones that cannot see it. Keep going. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. By me, kings reign, and rulers make laws that are just. By me, princes govern, and all nobles who rule on earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. Rehoboam's reign was based upon divine providence. And yet he didn't seek divine guidance. It was God who put him there, allowed him to be there, and yet he didn't seek the one who could guide him in the position that he'd been placed. He didn't even seek the advice of men who were seeking God. Now, I know none of us have ever been in a position that was granted by God, and yet failed to seek the way that he would like it to be driven. Rehoboam is going to be an example to us tonight that we're going to learn from. We're going to be strengthened by their failures because we're going to succeed. We have to ask ourselves as we're reading this, though, why is there no mention of prayer anywhere in the passage? It's not there whatsoever. His very approach was filled with pride and arrogance, and so he could not fear God. Why is there no mention of consulting the written word over these three days? A third question that is worth asking is, why is there no mention of recounting what God already spoke? He's already spoken something on the subject matter, and nobody seems to remember it or reiterate it. It's interesting. Who is Jeremiah 23? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, You will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, No harm will come to you. Mm. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Now pause there for a second. You guys already know because you're at LCM. You shouldn't trust anybody who calls themselves your friend and only tells you things that you want to hear. You shouldn't trust that at all. The people that you should hold close to you are the ones that tell you the truth about where you're at, no matter how how bad it hurts. And keep going. Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, and whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In the days to come, you will understand the clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and their evil deeds. Wow. Anybody in this story could have done this. Rehoboam could have done this. The people he was going to for advice could have done this. And if anyone would have stood in the counsel of the Lord, sought his face, they would have turned the nation from what is about to happen. If they would have stood in his counsel, they would have known his heart and purpose. Yeah. But instead they went to anyone else that they could think of. You know, you say there's a wisdom in a multitude of counsel. Well, that is true if the multitude of the counsel you're seeking comes from the Lord first before you go to other people. Oftentimes we want to go to other people because we haven't heard from the Lord ourselves and we think we can keep asking to get the answer we want. 
And that's what Rehoboam is doing here. Shopping. Even though God foretold through Ahijah that there would be a split in the kingdom, this was foretold that this was going to happen. But you know what? Who knows? Repentance may have averted it. Man, <laughs> that prophecy happened. And the old wise counselors that everybody prefers their counsel, they're acting like if he's just nice, nothing's going to happen that's bad. They're wrong. They're clearly wrong. And somehow or another that's missed in every case. What's needed is not nice words. What's needed is for the nation to fall on its face and repent for their actions. Repentance may have adverted this, even though it was foretold by God. 2 Samuel 7, 14, as I promised, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them. And that was the previous chapter, and they're already forgetting that. How easy is it for us to forget that, and we go about not seeking the Lord's counsel? Look, we've already handed out law and prophets on this subject, and we're going to read it. But consider that we are in the writings, and in chapter 12, verse 6, is 6 through 8, the Lord relents from destroying Jerusalem through the Egyptian Shishak because of their repentance. He doesn't destroy Jerusalem. Their humbling of themselves meant a much lesser form of judgment. Do you, do you follow that? Yeah. And it keeps happening that prophets are showing up and telling them the will of the Lord. I am so thankful for prophets. Mm-hmm. But should you be dependent on somebody else showing up and telling you what the will of the Lord is? What's the point of the counselors if nobody's seeking the face of God? Well, you got one group of counselors that says, be nice, it'll all be great. You got another that says, be a tyrant, it'll all be great. And they're all idiots. If somebody would just seek the face of the Lord, then this could be averted. Look at what Exodus 32, 13 through 14 says. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster we had threatened. The Lord did what? He relented. He threatened an action, and then he backed up from it. Why would you think that the prophecy of Ahijah couldn't be backed up from if the response of the people was right? Look, we're missing the point of discipline. The point of discipline is the correction of the behavior more than the enactment of the punishment. It's not just show up and take your licks. The whole point of the punishment is to correct the behavior. If you correct the behavior, perhaps the punishment would be lessened. It is important to note, though, that although punishment is not the point, it is the destiny of all uncorrected behavior. That's an important point to grasp. There is a a line you can cross where nothing will avert the consequence of your sin, even if you're forgiven for it. Where's Jeremiah 26? It may be that they will listen and everyone turn away from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Saints, when we hear these things, just a moment ago it was stated, every 
uncorrected behavior will be punished. Do not put in your mind the lost. These things are directed towards believing communities, to his chosen and holy people that he redeemed himself to have them, to have them close to him. In us, in Christ, every behavior that is uncorrected, there will be a punishment for. But the prophets, the written word of God and his spirit that is alive inside of us is saying, if you will turn from your evil ways, then I will relent. But if we do not, then we can be sure that disaster will come. It does not matter our standing in Christ. If we do not respond to his direction, he will make sure there is a punishment in your life that will teach you to change the behavior. We would prefer and are fighting for us just listening to the voice of the Spirit. Does that sound good? Which one of the groups of counselors counseled for repentance? No, they were just like American pastors. It's not a word in their vocabulary. Blessings, blessings. If you do what we tell you to do, blessings. The old said it and the young said it. And our pastorate is so blind that we preach sermons about why what the old said was right and the young were not. They're both wrong. They weren't even close, not in the ballpark. And we can't see it. Because we're sure the Bible is addressing someone else's sin, but definitely not ours. So we want to look at a chart together that we've seen many times, but we want to look at it in this situation. At Solomon, Rehoboam's father's best time in life, filled with the wisdom of God, filled with a heart that was like the Lord, we had a prayer. If they will humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Saints, what Rehoboam desperately needs in this moment is a humbling that leads him to pray, that leads him to seek the face of God, a turning from wicked ways where God's ears are attentive to the needs of his people. He's the king. It's his job to lead them into his presence. Hey, what's the unparalleled truth of that? Turn from wicked ways. Turn from wicked ways. You get the impression that Rehoboam, first and foremost, didn't want to turn from wicked ways, and that's why he didn't start by humbling himself. That's why he didn't start in prayer and seeking God's face. You know, all too often we know what we want to do before we even get to the place where we need to seek the Lord's face. We don't want to turn from wicked ways, so we skip all those steps altogether. It hinges on turning from wicked ways. That is the point of it. So we're about to be in a place where we desperately need forgiveness. We desperately need healing. And his father gave him the key that is needed for this exact moment. Saints, we've been entrusted with much. We want to learn not just a chiastic structure. We want to learn how to apply a chiastic structure in our situations this week. We're going to learn to walk in these things and let them be tools that are weapons of righteousness in a right and left hand where we are able to accomplish the will of God and survive the things that we have not done rightly. Maybe we've judged too harshly. Let's go through the advice that these men gave. Because we're so often wrong as we interpret these things. All right, Antonius, verse 7. They replied, if you'll be kind to these people and please them. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Well, I didn't catch that. What was that? If you'll be kind to these people and please them. Man, that sounds like a Motown song. (laughs) Hey, 
Be a people pleaser. Everything will be fine. Just give them whatever they want and everything will be okay. Hey, shouldn't righteous fathers have directed Rehoboam toward repentance and the Lord? I mean, I want to ask a question. Have you ever sought someone out for counsel because you know they will probably give you this answer? I want to ask another question. (laughs) Have you ever been that type of counselor that just says what people want to hear because you're afraid to tell them the truth? Cowards won't enter the kingdom. Let's just get that straight. When somebody comes to you and asks you for advice, the very first thing that should come to your mind is, why is he asking me? Very first thing. It might be the most indicting question you ever ask of yourself. It's all too easy when someone comes to you, you're prideful, they're like, man, they're coming to me for advice, and then you just want to tell them whatever comes to your mind instead of saying, hey, I don't know the answer. Did you pray and seek the Lord? Okay, you have it. Now I'm going to pray and seek the Lord with you, and we're going to hear God's voice together. That is what we should do. Let's continue on to verse 8 and see the other kind of advice. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders of Dathan and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell the people who have said to you, your father has put a heavy yoke on us, but, but make our yoke lighter until my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy bird, a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier, even heavier. My, my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I know why everybody likes the old guy's advice, because the young guy's advice is just that putrid. You know, it, it's like doing a funeral for, for somebody, and, and, and he's such a devil you're offered a million dollars to make him sound like a saint. So you, you stand there and you say, you know, this guy was a wicked devil, but when compared to his brother over there, he's an angel, you know? <laughs> the old guys took the path of least resistance without any knowledge of what God wanted done. The young guys took the path of ultimate pride and arrogance. You know, your daddy, Solomon, what a wuss he was. You... You are so much bigger, so much stronger, so much tax them more. In fact, that sounds like a few national platforms in our media right now. Uh, They're essentially saying, be a tyrant and everything will be fine. Now, history has not looked well on people that were tyrants in their taxation. (laughs) Uh, I want you to notice he didn't take either group's advice. I know you think he did, but he didn't. He didn't take the old guy's advice. He didn't just tell them whatever they wanted to hear. And he didn't take the young guy's advice. He does not tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. It was too far for him. He grew up in his father's house. He knew he wasn't a match for his father. But he liked counselors that thought he was. Shouldn't his peers have cautioned him against pride and arrogance so that he could seek the face of the Lord in repentance? Shouldn't he? Let's pick up in verse 12. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered them harshly, rejecting the advice of the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from God, to fulfill the word of the Lord that the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. 
So listen, there's all kinds of interesting interplay here. If you're feeling adventurous at some point, go read some Hebrew commentary about the verses that are, we just covered. The point, though, is that for this turn of events was from God. This turn of events was something that God had destined, that he had spoken about, and that he was bringing about through sinful behavior. It's astounding how God can bring about our own punishment and our own teaching by the fruit of our sinful deeds. What may have happened if they had humbled themselves and prayed instead of playing into the very plan that was going to bring destruction upon them? Lanson, will you get verse 16 for us? When all Israel saw that the king had refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own, after your own house, O David. So all the Israelites went home. Now say that's bad. That's bad. They just up and left the family. Look, I want to show you a couple of the words that are going to be used in the coming chapter. They say, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. From now, the northern faction that will be referred to from now on, they refer to as Israel. This is the northern ten tribes. And they're feeling pretty disenfranchised, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Whether Rehoboam was a good leader or a bad leader, he was still in a position ordained by God. He was the son of David in that time. And he was sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. Yeah. But what would have happened instead of yielding to disenfranchisement? They humbled themselves and cried out to the Lord for help. It's mm. a good thing that that's not a problem today anywhere. <laughs> Nobody's appealing to you to feel disenfranchisement. <laughs> I mean, we can't even say all lives matter without there being a big problem. Nobody's trying to play on your feelings of disenfranchisement. I'm glad that this ancient book has no relevance today. What did you say earlier, Teamster? In a situation where nobody is godly, David, catch this, David is being dishonored. No one's godly here, but David is being dishonored. They're saying, the northern ten tribes are saying to the southern tribe of Judah, look after your own house. David, well, David's not there, is he? He's actually the granddaddy of Rehoboam. Also, Jesse is being dishonored. Jesse's being dishonored when they say, what part in Jesse's son do we have? Now think of the generational consequence that's happening here. We saw David, we saw Solomon start to get into a little sin, and now Rehoboam is just splitting the family wide apart. You see how sin and the consequence of it just gradually increases throughout each generation. I mean, they're mentioning the great-grandfather of Rehoboam. I want to hop on that for a second. The number one thing that if we could just download from Google for you (laughs) would be a knowledge of the consequence of your sin in the future. Mm -hmm. The problem that we have is that when you're lax five years ago, you might just now be reaping that fruit, and Mm -hmm. so you disassociate those things. So somebody doesn't raise their kid well, but they're pretty sure that the events of this month are causing the problem. When in reality, it started not being able to make a transition from their 10th birthday to their 15th birthday. That is a very normal behavior that pastors have to deal with. And what's happening here actually started in the reign of David as righteous as he was. 
family favoritism, not being able to call out sin in relatives, all of those things are coming home to roost. It just took three generations for it to happen. Anything that you think you get away with today, I promise we'll revisit you later. Mm -hmm. I can say that from very personal experience. The only hope that you have is that you're more godly later so that you can recover from it than you are today. But what would happen if we looked into the face of humbling ourselves, praying, seeking his face so we could turn from our wicked way today? Well, then four or five years from now, we would be eating nothing but the fruit of righteousness. You act sometimes like a mystical force has happened to you when a consequence that has been years in the making has just now arrived. That is the definition of mistaking God's grace for a license for immorality. Because you've gotten away with your bad behavior for 20 years, your poor pastoring of your wife, your lack of directing your children, doesn't mean that God was okay with it. It just means that it's going to come home at a time that will drive you to repentance. I don't want to be driven to repentance. Mm -hmm. I want to be seeking repentance all day, every day. Look, this is the one nation on the earth that God formed to carry his name. You remember the celestial powers teaching? All the other nations had other powers over them. This nation was formed for God's purpose. It's not just that they're dishonoring David and they're dishonoring Jesse. They're dishonoring the God that has attached his name to them. Man, that's huge. What do you think it means in the third commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Hey, let's pick up in verse 17. But as for the Israelites who were living in the town of Judah, Judah, where your bones still root over So here the word Israelites, Israel is is an interesting word in the Bible. In this sentence, but as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. Here the word Israelites refers to the people of every one of the 12 tribes that have remained loyal to the house of David and are presently residing in Judah. When you ask me where I'm from, that's a complicated answer. I was born in Houston. I was raised in Louisiana. I currently live in Texas. Do you see how that works? So as we get into this, especially we'll do it in chapter 11, verse 14 more, you need to understand that in the scripture, Israel could mean many things. It could be the man that Jacob was renamed into Israel. It could mean the nation as a whole, or it could mean the northern part of a nation. Your interpretation of that one thing alone will save you from grievous error. Most of the worst error in Christianity today is from misinterpreting the name Israel to mean something other than what the author meant by it. Does that make sense to you? Yes. We'll keep alerting you to it as we go through it. It's not complicated. Usually, either the text itself from a historical standpoint or the literary emphasis of the text gives you giant clues. We can't be talking about the territory of the northern tribes because he said... 
They're in Judah. Does that make sense? Okay, let's pick up in verse 18. That didn't go very well. <laughs> so apparently Adoniram's methods of motivation, the guy in charge of forced labor, didn't go over very well with the Israelites. It cost him his very life. Yeah, maybe Adoniram should have sought the Lord's counsel before he went out. <laughs> yeah. Rebellion is birthed. We've had the split. He's desperately trying to halt the consequences of his lack of seeking God's face, lack of repentance, and lack of divine direction. And despite his foreman's best efforts, it's not happening. Nothing is moving. One of the things that we've noticed through the years is that advisors rarely suffer the consequences along with the person who took their advice. Hit him! Hit him! Well, they're not the one in the fight. Man, what a wuss. What happened to him? Ha! You got your butt kicked, man! Yeah, you're the one who told me to hit him. Oh, this is really what you should do with your kids, and then I'm not going to be there to help you with the 15-year-old. That's right. Dr. Spock had no kids. Yeah. It's priceless. If you don't know who that is, ask one of the elders. Saints, you've all been there. It's beginning to settle on you that the consequences of your actions are coming home to roost and there's nothing that you can do about it, and you're trying in your flesh in every way that you can to mitigate the loss. Verse 19, Israel should be taken to mean the northern portion of the nation. We're talking about that northern kingdom and power. They have been in rebellion to this day. Whose day, saints? Ezra. Ezra. This has seriously lasting consequences to the point where Ezra is writing long after these kingdoms have fallen and Judah is rising again by the grace of God. The rebellious factions existed long after the civil government was disbanded. So these two kingdoms still have animosity and issues with each other because they came from a house that had been split, that had been compromised. Israel's varied meanings in the text must be discerned through the historical and literary context. Something happened here that you would do well to remember when you're reading in Jeremiah, when you're reading in Isaiah, when you're reading in Amos, that will help you set the stage for the biblical worldview. And the terms that are used denote their relationship to this event. We're about to pick up in chapter 11. What we want you to get from chapter 10 is that the advice has yielded adversity. I mean, do you get that? Yes. The second thing is about these terms. Ezra is living 250 years after Israel's government, the northern faction's government, no longer exists. But the people of, that were under or subject to that government, they still do exist. And they are still a problem in Ezra's day. This is one of the ways where the word Israel is broad enough to both mean a government that ceased to be after an Assyrian captivity, and mean a people that still existed in Ezra's day, and still exist in Christ's day, and still exist today. And we will show you that in the text tonight. Let's pick up in chapter 11 and verse 1. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men, 
make war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam. Now wait a second. This is Rehoboam's fault. He did not seek the Lord. He made a decision based on what he wanted to do. And all of a sudden, he is about to make war against his brothers now. Y'all listen. This trait is so common in carnal Christians today. It's common in this room. Having made a bad decision with unforeseen consequences, we double down on the bad behavior and go to war to defend a position that we shouldn't be in in the first place. We start preparing for war. Yeah. We start preparing our defenses in case I show up at church and this pastor says this to me. I've already pre-configured what I'm going to say to lure him away from highlighting the sin that I have committed. Wow. I'm not going to go to fellowship. Instead, I'm just going to say that I was sick even though I wasn't sick because I am going to war against everything that wants to point out the sin. Oh, you were sick, just not like you said. <laughs> Thank God they did not follow through with this. You know what stopped them? Intervention of prophets, or should we say, pastors. Man, aren't you glad? Has anybody had a pastor come in and say, hey, you're about to do something and you're doubling down on a bad decision? Man, what would it be like if we didn't have that? Come on. Man, we would have have gone to war. Maybe some brothers would have died. Praise God for the intervention of prophets and pastors in this room. And men of God. Trust me, we need them. We need them in our lives. This is why they're teaching us to seek the face of the Lord, teaching us to be dependent, and teaching us to follow under them so that they can always be giving us the insight we need. Hey, what's verse 2? But this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the Israelites in Judah and Benjamin. This is what the Lord says. Do not go to fight against your brother. It's a good word. Go home, every one of you. For this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back from marching against Jeroboam. I love this about the prophets. They can show up on a battlefield where everybody's ready to fight and be like, go home. And they do. That's because there's authority from God here. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in textual notes. I I want you to keep the main theme. But here, when the word Judah is being mentioned, know that Judah is a southern territory, but it's sometimes also a generalization to mean the whole southern governmental administration. Israelites in Judah, mentioned in this text, are people from all 12 tribes, but loyal to the house of David. When it says Benjamin... Benjamin is a southern territory that is most often mentioned in an allied relationship to Judah, comprising the southern nation, but sometimes when Benjamin is mentioned, it's just a singular tribe. You have to know where we're at in history, and you have to be reading the text with the uh, intent of the author, not the intent of an interpretive framework that comes about several thousand years later. And when you do that, something becomes crystal clear, and it's going to get clearer as we go, if you can get clearer than crystal. We never lost any tribes, not not at any time. But I do want to focus on something before we do that. The most refreshing phrase that I've heard thus far in the narrative tonight is, so they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back. Amen. I got to tell you, that can change everything. Yeah. 
You can be an absolute carnal mutant, but obey the word of the Lord and turn back, and there's hope for you. You can be as pristinely white as those guys in funny hats on TV at the Christmas Mass and do wicked things without turning back, and you will get burned in an eternal fire. Everything depends on your ability to recognize your present station and turn. Everything does. We're going to hand out a few scriptures for you. And our hope is that they impact your soul. Do you want your soul yeah. impacted? Yeah. Nolan, Deuteronomy 30, 9 through 10. Andrew Tisdale, Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 16. Cho, Micah 6, 7 through 9. Hayes in the back, project for us. Proverbs 16, 20 through 23. Pick up when you get there. Deuteronomy 39 through 10. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. All right, well, it sounded pretty good so far. Most prosperous, all of your work, in the fruit of your womb. Livestock, crops, depicting almost every area of life here. Keep going. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. Thanks. There's a truth here that we need to grab hold of. It's entirely possible for the Lord to have previously delighted in you and not be delighting you in this moment. But he says the Lord will again delight in you. Yeah, again. Listen, when you feel like you are distant from the Lord, you have sinned and sinned royally and left yourself in a place where you're far from him, you can again be made prosperous by his right hand. Keep going. If you obey the Lord your God... What? What do you have to do? Oh, my goodness. And keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law. Oh, come on. Not our version of it. Not some kind of mystical understanding of his law. What he already spoke and already gave us. Finish the verse. And turn to the Lord. Ah, we're going to turn. Listen, God is able to restore you. He's able to delight in you. You are not too far if you are willing to turn and obey his commands. There is hope. There is the ability to become something more. The Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen, the Lord promises he will bless all the work of your hands, every area of your life, if you turn and obey with all your heart and all your soul. Who has the next passage in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 16. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, (coughs) death and destruction. Man, I love that line. Mm -hmm. He has set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now, it is so true that if you reject what the Lord is trying to tell you, that is death and destruction. But you want to know what else is always true? He is always setting life and prosperity there for you to choose it. It's always an option. It's always there. Keep going. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Look, we've already established that you can have things in your life that you are not aware of until five years down the road, you're starting to see the fruit of the seed that was buried down into the soil and you're starting to see the fruit and you're saying, hey, there's a problem. Yeah. You want to know the beautiful thing about that? 
No, none of us want to get in a situation where we have to reap consequences for five years. But if you start to notice that you're reaping death and destruction, you can always choose life and prosperity. It is always there. You can always root out that seed and cut it out at the root. As long as you have breath in your lungs and you want life and prosperity, Amen. he will give it to you if yes. you repent. Amen. Who wants to live? Yeah. Let's read Micah 6, verses 7 through 9. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear. Your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Look, I, I get that this is a very old book, Micah, and uh, everybody loves verse 8. They don't do it, but they love it, and nobody reads verse 9. I, I, I get it. You know what one of the most righteous things you could possibly do is when you are reaping consequence, you acknowledge that it's the consequence of your sin instead Amen. of some mystical problem. Amen. You know, I don't know why this is happening to me. Sure you do. You were steeped in sin from birth. Yeah. Own up to it. That's how you change. Amen. And Christians are worse than non-Christians about this. Yeah. Non-Christians are like, yeah, I'm just a sinner. I, I, I don't know. But Christians... You act like you have no idea why something is happening to you. It's a mystery. You're supposed to know why it's happening to you. It's because you have not walked as righteously as you should. Why can't we do this? I, I, I got to say, leaders, you know, I'm an elder now. I can get away with this. Leaders, we should lead the way in this. If you never hear leaders saying, my bad, I drove us the wrong direction, and that's why we're experiencing this hardship. Then, of course, the sheep don't do it. We have to learn to embrace consequence as something that is good for us and corrective. Yeah. The way this works is bad advice led to adversity, but that adversity is supposed to drive them towards repentance. Come on. And when you don't recognize why you're having adversity, do you know what else you don't do? Repent. He doesn't just say to act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And by the way, walking humbly would produce what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. He says, heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Recognize why what is happening to you is happening to you. It's probably not your neighbor's fault. It's almost certainly not your pastor's fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's your fault. And it's a good thing when you recognize that. That gives you something to turn from. It gives you a direction to go. That's what we're hoping for. Who had Proverbs 16, 20? Proverbs 16, 20. Whoever gives instructions prospers and blesses he trusts in the Lord. All right, we've got three more verses, but that's good enough in and of itself. <laughs> Whoever heeds instruction is going to prosper. The instruction that comes by verbal direction... Praise God when it's that simple. The instruction that comes when you're experiencing the penalty of bad decisions and reckoning with the fact that it is indeed your fault, not anyone else's. That you will be blessed. Those who trust in the Lord find what they need through the Lord's discipline. You want to know whether or not you trust the Lord? Let your life be afflicted and we'll see how you handle it. 
That is the definition, the defining moment when you're in the crucible. Do I really trust him as a good and just father? The word that was used in Micah is rod. This is depicting a shepherd that is steering his sheep and getting them to move when they have not been heeding his voice. Keep reading. The wise in heart are called discerning, and pleasant words promote instruction. The wise in heart are called discerning. Saints, this is not worldly wisdom. This is not the advice of the young men and not the advice of the old men in this passage. This is those that have sought his menorah and his table of presence and have heard from God and have something in their heart, man. Pleasant words promote instruction. This is words that are coming from the throne room, that are healing, that are life-giving. They promote a kind of instruction that leads to life in others. Do you want to promote life in others? Keep going. Think about that. Keep reading. A wise man's heart guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. Listen, there's an unbreakable link that no matter what we do or what we say, that the scripture declares what comes out of your mouth, whether it's a complaint or slanderous word, is what is in your heart. How we respond to correction, whether in our mind or verbally letting it out, is the actual condition of our heart. But we serve a God that is able to renovate our hearts. If we are willing to expose it and respond to him, he may even relent from the punishment. Hey, Brother Linton, verse 5 for us. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built up towns for the prince of Judah, Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marashat, Zip, Anarim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, and Ahijalam, and Hebron. They were fortified cities in Judah and Benjamin. They took in their defenses and put commanders in them with supplies of food, olive oil, and wine. Now I'm going to show you a slide on the screen, and I want you to look at this. He had already been told, do not go to war with your brothers. And he was wise. He heeded that correction. But he still did not go home and fix the problem that was inside of him. Instead, he goes home and builds up these cities for defense. Do you see this cluster of cities right here in the center? Yeah. Yeah. That is where, these are the cities that he built up in defense. Well, in defense of what, you might say? He's strengthening his defenses primarily against perceived northern aggression. Mm. And we all know those northerners are aggressive, right? (laughs) Look, he hasn't fixed the problem inside of itself. Instead, what he's doing is he is mulling over this problem. This offense that he has, this thing that he got wrong and he hasn't fully gotten right yet, he's starting to posture a little bit. He's starting to put guards in place so that if anything happens, he's going to have a defense ready to defend his own sin. This is why we're trying to get to the point. Every person in this room, you should get it in your soul. The number one thing you can do best in your Christian life is being aware of your true state. That is the number one thing because that is how you learn who you are, and who you are in Christ. We have to learn where we're at. But you know what this is going to do? He's doing this because he thinks it's protecting him against the north. This is going to leave him vulnerable to attack from the south, Egypt. He's going to be vulnerable to Egypt in the future. So when you start posturing because you're in defense over Uh your own sin, you're leaving yourself to another attack that you won't see. 
You're okay. always, it, you, you bounce from one attack to the other and you don't know what's going on because you haven't corrected the issue inside of you. Justin, Justin, the Lord told me not to go to war with you, but I'm still offended. So I'm not going to come over here and go to war with you. But should you happen to say something to me, man, I'm preloaded, I'm ready to fight. He's okay. it. And the whole time he's doing that, the enemy is coming from the unguarded position. This is exactly what happens in these next few chapters. You'll see that as we get going. Wow. Uh, who wants to read a little bit? Spence, come on, cuz. Let's do Proverbs 18, and we're going to do a few verses. I'll take 19, and we'll let Judah take it after that. 18, 19. Look, this has been proven true time and time again. I mean, <laughs> if there's anything that I can say with certainty is true in the Word, I have experienced this one. That ought to drive us to deal with offense immediately. Amen. It doesn't get better in a week. Don't wait for a, a right time. It, it never gets better. It actually gets worse over time. Look, don't let it take root. Spence, pick up in verse 20. From the fruit of his mouth, a man's stomach is filled. With the harvest from his lips, he is satisfied. Uh-huh. All right. 21. The tongue has the power of life and death, but those who love it will eat its fruit. <clears throat> Just in case you missed the poetry, in the poetry, we're, we're speaking about What's coming out of your mouth being a representation of what's on the inside of you. And more than that, it having an effect on the world and the people that are, are around you. So the prior verse has said that an offended brother, man, it's like a citadel. It's a fortified city. So many times, something will fly out of your mouth that you shouldn't have said. Something is bound up in you. The Lord told you not to go to war, but you've been building your defenses. You never quite let go of that offense. And little areas just keep leaking out every time you're in a group. Every time you're in that situation again. It just, just flies out there. And you're like, oh, I was just, I was stressed. That wasn't I, my heart. I was angry. I was just emotional that day. Never heard that before. I wasn't involved in warfare. It was just like biological warfare. I'm yeah. lobbing dead things over in that direction. But I didn't do it. You know, I didn't go over there. It's all good now, though. Saints, this is a key in our life. You did not say that just because you had a hard day or because you were angry and frustrated in the moment. It's because it is the actual condition of your heart that's been hidden most of the time. And the reality is if we could pull you back, open up and see your actual heart, you would see the fortifications that are being built everywhere against the person, the entity, or the people that offense is brewing. You know, nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to be offended with an entire congregation and with three different pastors. You know, but it starts with the little fortifications that you build now that you haven't uprooted and they accumulate. They accumulate until you have a wall that brothers cannot reconcile. So we're going to eliminate them. We're not going to take excuses and say that, oh, that's not really real. We're going to identify it and we're going to remove them. 
We're going to pick up the pace here just a little bit because I sense that we're hitting the right kind of spot, but I just, I'm going to lob one more at you. All right? I've forgiven you, honey. But 19 years later, while we're fighting, you always do this. You've never done that. Ever since the day we got married. You see what fortifications do in your life? But I know none of you good people have ever, yeah, I can see you flinching and, and husbands and wives turning to each other. This goes on in the body of Christ every bit as much as it does the world. You actually move on and forget it because you believe that you're forgiven from it since you asked for it without carving it out of your heart. All right, let's go to Matthew 5, 23 and see how to carve it out of your heart. Amen. Somebody got it? I'll read it. Yeah. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Not you have something against them. They have something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to your brother. Mm. Then come and offer your gift. You know, this sounds a lot like Jesus is using tabernacle language, right? Oh, imagine that. So let's read it in the LCM version. Therefore, if you are praying through the altar, praying through the tabernacle, and remember this, this is what you do. This does not allow time for contemplation and processing. You know, we've been praying through the tabernacle, right? We've been doing it every day, right? Yeah. While you are praying through the tabernacle, when these things come to your mind, you immediately deal with them. Yeah. The emphasis here is not placed on your offense with the other person. This is putting the responsibility on you that if you know someone has something against you, you go to them and you clear it up like a good brother. It must be dealt with. Or how will you progress past the altar? Have you ever been praying at the altar and you just can't get past? Yes. Perhaps you need to leave and go deal with an offense. And if you haven't had that experience, then you don't know what's in your own heart. Look, knowing this will make you very careful about how you define a brother. Come on. When a brother will not be reconciled with this body, probably because he's not praying through the tabernacle. But if he will not be reconciled with this body, you should take warning. Yeah. That means he's on his way out. This church deals with these things publicly precisely so that you don't get entangled in civil wars that are unproductive and work through the body like a cancer. Yeah. And thank God for the brazen altar, right? Amen. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. I'm going to read it. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test. You have a test before you. Do you stand back and build defenses? Or do you go and make things right? Come on. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us. Woo. For we are not unaware of his schemes. I hope you're becoming more and more aware of his schemes. We're going to eliminate those schemes in this house. Oh, yeah. There's not going to be any brothers that are allowing the devil to get a foothold. Hey, let's read Ephesians 4.25 together. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully or plainly or honestly to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. 
in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Saints, if your brother is acting wrongly, don't coddle him. Speak the truth. And don't leave things bound up in your heart that you didn't say and you're still mulling over. Even if you like older advisors better than younger, (laughs) you have to speak the truth. You're not doing anybody any favors to sit and be a sympathetic ear. Did I say sympathetic or sinful ear? Mm. Speak the truth and move on. (laughs) Do not give the devil a foothold. Any emotion that we are lingering in that is not from the mind of Christ, that you are sitting in, that you are holding on to, and is not eliminated by sunset that day, is an area that the devil, that Egypt, Shishak, has in your life and is getting that much closer to Jerusalem. And he's not there to play nice, I promise. Hey, want to keep reading? 12 and 13. So Judah and Benjamin were his. The priests and Levites from all their districts throughout Israel sided with him. Now I want to get into some geography here. we got a slide, and uh, we'll see if we can see all this. This is showing the regions that the tribes settled in. It said in the text that Judah and Benjamin were Rehoboam's, and that the Levites also sided with him. So when the text says Judah and Benjamin were his... That means the southern kingdom. But you also see Simeon right there landlocked in Judah. Mm -hmm. That means Simeon was also a part of the southern kingdom of Judah. So you have Simeon, Judah, and Benjamin. Priests and Levites throughout all their districts in Israel, which you should be hearing the northern kingdom when I say that, they also sided with Rehoboam and not Jeroboam. They sensed he was wicked, and they decided we're going to get out of here. So catch that. Back to the top of the screen, Pastor Wade. Yes, sir. Up here where you see Asher and Naphtali and East Manasseh, guess who else lived there? Levites did. But they left that place and went to Jerusalem because of the promises given to the house of David. You have an enormous migration of people who wanted to remain loyal to what God was doing from every tribe. That's going to become self-evident as we go. What we want you to know, and we're bringing up repeatedly, is no tribe was ever lost. The government of the northern faction was lost. The tribes were not lost. Are you following me? So if you meet some British Fruit Loop that thinks that he's Israel because the ten tribes were lost, and suddenly the United Kingdom should be Israel or a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, or any number of people that erroneously identify themselves as one of the Israelites, they're not being faithful to the text. Watch how clear that gets as we hand out New Testament passages. Y'all ready for this? Justin, will you hand those out? All right, Paul Rosales, Matthew 10, 5 through 6. Nick Rosales, Matthew 15, 24. Marlon, you get Matthew 4, 13. Steve Thomas, Luke 2, 36. Brenton, Acts 4, 36. Rob, Philippians 3, 5. JJ, Acts 26, verse 7. And Brandon, James 1, verse 1. Amen. All New Testament passages. Amen. Read them when you got them. All right, Matthew, just got Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 5, and 6. 
These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Now he didn't say the lost sheep of Judah. Or he didn't say the lost sheep of Benjamin. He said the lost sheep of Israel. But wait a second. The northern ten tribes are lost. They assimilated into Assyrian captivity. Wrong. They were still there in Jesus' time. And he considered his ministry to Israel. Tribes that were not lost in Jesus' time. Who's got Matthew 15, 24? Matthew 15, 24. He answered, I was sent only to, to the lost sheep of Israel. The government of the northern faction was lost. But the tribes... Were not. Jesus was still ministering to them. Matthew 4 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Nephthalu. In Jesus' day, Zebulun and Naphtali did not cease to be or become homogenous with the nations. Their territories are still referred to. And during Ezra's day, they could be identified and were coming back to the promised land. Men who descended from these tribes and no tribe was ever lost. Luke 2.36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Hanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Mm. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Look, everybody says, oh, you can point out Benjamin. You can point out Judah because they were the southern kingdom. Well, Asher was not a part of the southern kingdom when it split. It was one of the northern tribes. And she was able to trace her lineage in Jesus' time from the tribe of Asher. Again, not a lost tribe. The government was gone, but her lineage remained. She still belonged to that tribe. She lived in Jerusalem, but was from Asher. Who's got Acts 4.36? Acts 4.36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Barnabas, Joseph, was a Levite. He just lived in Cyprus. His lineage was intact, and his location was Cyprus. Until, of course, he, like other Levites, came to Jerusalem. You can keep your national lineage while living in a different location. Philippians 3, verse 5. Paul knew for certain that he was a Benjamite and that he lived in Tarsus, was from Tarsus. And later he came to Jerusalem, but his tribe was never misconstrued. Saints, of all the people in the world, we should be able to identify with living somewhere other than our genetic point of origin. Uh, we got it? Yeah, yeah. Who has Acts 26? Verse 7. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. He's talking about the resurrection and he's putting it in a future sense. He's saying this is the promise that the 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. Well, how could that happen if 10 of those tribes just disappeared off the face of the map? It's because they didn't. And Paul knew that those 12 tribes were present in his day. They weren't redefined as Mormons. They weren't redefined as Muslims. They're not redefined as Americans who want to be Jews. There are, there were, and there always will be 12 tribes. 
Let's read James 1.1. 1, 1. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Clearly, James believed that all twelve tribes were present in his day, although they were scattered around the world. Come on. Look, we could do this forever, but it's more important to instruct you on what the word does say than defend you against the errors that come from what it doesn't say. It's a good word. So let's go to verse 14. The Levites even abandoned their pasture land and property and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols he made. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord. I'm sorry, you need to read that one more time. Verse 16. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, follow the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, three years, walking in the ways of David and Solomon during this time. Come on. Every single tribe had people that went to Jerusalem to strengthen the southern kingdom because they knew it was right. The idea of lost tribes is a myth that New Testament theologians have used to justify you becoming a Jew. You're not. And if you are, then stop doing things that Jews don't do, like lying. I want to show you a chart. This chart is incredibly useful for a lot of things. One of the things that it's useful for is you get a basic idea of the geography that is in dispute tonight. But it's misleading. And I found hundreds of charts like it. They're all in Logos software, and they're all wrong. Look at what it says at the top. Rehoboam succeeds Solomon and loses ten tribes. They weren't lost. They've never been lost. Men from every tribe of Israel came with Levites to be loyal to Rehoboam. We need to stop propagating this lie. It is screwing up people's theology. These chapters tonight contain more threats than this, though. And we're going to move on to them. The chapters tonight contain two threats that are bigger than any Egyptian army that is about to invade Jerusalem. Are you ready? Ready. The first is the propensity of the southern kingdom to forget the Lord any time that they prosper. It's a good thing that nobody in this room has that problem. It's not what we spent three hours repenting about last Monday night, is it? Well, since that's no longer an issue in here, we'll move on to the second problem. It's the propensity of the northern kingdom to assimilate worldly practices into their worship all the time while claiming that they're purely worshiping Yahweh. We're going to hand out a few passages to give you an idea of what Jeroboam is doing because Jeroboam is very much alive and present all around us right now in a spiritual sense. 1 Kings 12, 26-29, Rob. 1 Kings 12, 31 through 32, Tima. 1 Kings 12, 32 through 33, Nick Rosales. Pick up when you get there. 
Yes. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Ah, we told you this guy was a bit of a teamster. The Lord spoke to him after he got a promotion from Solomon that he would receive the tribes. Then, then he tried to kill him and God preserved his life. The king of Israel is trying to kill a man and yet somehow he made it out of Israel alive. And then he's come to the place where what God spoke all of those years ago has come to pass. The kingdom will likely revert to the house of David now. You can hear the fear in his voice after witnessing God's miracle. I know we've never been scared after watching God already provide for us. Mm. Keep reading. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. Man, if they serve the Lord, the Lord might speak something to them other than to follow me, other than to stand with me. The very fact that he's concerned about this speaks to how many of his people were leaving the northern kingdom and going to the southern kingdom. Verse 28 is one of my favorites. Read the first three words, Rob. After seeking advice. Advice from whom? (laughs) Both of these guys have a very similar problem. Jeroboam and Rehoboam keep seeking advice and it's not the counsel of God. It's never from the priests or the Levites. It's whomever they want to hear an opinion from. And you see the fruit of it. Keep reading. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Those golden calves have always worked out so well in Israel's history. We'll try it again. It's so, so hard for you to travel to the temple that we just spent all of this time building. That David and Solomon spent so much time, money, and effort that we all made sacrifices and donations to see it happen. It's so hard to go where God has called you to go. There's too much sacrifice in it there. Why don't we go back to the old way? The way that Aaron showed us while Moses is up on the mountain. That would be such a great idea. Keep going. I thought it was a cloud and fire at night. I didn't realize it was two golden calves. Those calves were leading them through the desert. That's what it was. Man, the lies that people believe when they're standing next to the truth but would rather an easier way, man, you'll accept anything in that kind of condition. Two convenient campus locations! <laughs> hey, in seeing the 12 tribes flocking to Rehoboam, Jeroboam got scared and sought advice rather than the Lord. Remember, both of these entities are not without sin. One has a cycle of repentance. The other doesn't. He made calves and he treated them like Yahweh. How offensive do you think that was to him? Who's got 1 Kings 12, 31 through 32? Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Just 31. Look, Jeroboam... He's getting scared. He's seeking advice from people. He's turning to idolatry instead of the living God. And now he's substituting the actual priests that are put in his life to pastor him. He's substituting them for hirelings. People that are paid to tell him anything and the people anything that they want to hear. But they're good athletes and they're so well-spoken. Oh, man. Got pretty teeth. 
You know, none of us, none of us seeks one day just to say, I'm going to go to Lakewood. But you start down this path of rejecting the Lord's advice, and then you start turning to hirelings that will tell you whatever. I'm going to just watch you on the internet. Yeah. Whatever's convenient, whatever is easy. You know, I'm still right with the Lord, but I get it my way now instead of what the Lord directed. Who's got 1 Kings 12, 32? You know, maybe we don't have everything right, but we're trying and it's awful similar. Jeroboam made festivals that were very much like the genuine festivals. The problem is, is they're totally idolatrous. If I had a dollar for every time somebody tried to convince me of all the good that somebody is doing in a festival of the month of their own choosing with men that are not actually priests installed by God and they're not actually worshiping God, they're worshiping something of their own making that they're calling worship of God, I would be a very wealthy man. But it worked because he did it in two convenient locations. You'll drive across town to get your hair cut, but you're going to tune in to whatever is the easiest that makes you feel the best, that is the most convenient when it comes to something as important as your soul. (laughs) Compromise. Acceptance of everybody. This is imposter religion, and it's based on idolatrous convenience. And tell me that it's not all around us. This might be more dangerous. This is why the Jews in Judea so feared commingling with Samaritans in any way. Because they knew that a little bit of yeast works through the whole batch and they were scared to get around it. I'm not saying that their response was right. But I'm saying that we have the same problem existing in our society right now. The vast majority of people that are claiming to worship in spirit and truth, are actually involved in Samaritan worship in exactly the same ways. And they say, well, we're preaching from the same Bible, so did the Samaritans. We're going to have to get back to an honest place with the Scripture that forces something that no man wants, the actual evaluation of his own heart. The reason that these clowns exist It's the people want them because it does something for the people. They can feel like they're doing a service to God without any of that baggage like repentance and turning from wicked ways and standing in fear of a holy God. They don't want any of that. So they've raised up for themselves teachers who teach what their tickling ears want. And it is epidemic in our time. The the southern kingdom is God's kingdom. And they weren't doing a lot better. Read Ezekiel and you'll hear how they're two sisters competing to do more wickedness. And there was some good left in it. Let's pick up in verse 18. Rebel, 
son Eliab. She bore him sons, Jehush, Shemaiah, and Zahan. Then he married Maka, daughter of Absalom, who bore him Abijah, Hattai, Ziza, and Shlomit. Shlomit. Rehoboam loved Maka, daughter of Absalom, more than any of his other wives and concubines. In all, he had 18 wives and 60 concubines. Brother was busy. Mm -hmm. 28 sons and 60 daughters. Pause there for just a moment. We're going to keep rolling. <laughs> We're going to suffice it to say that God increased his life. That everything that he had previously been involved in had grown and had been blessed. And you're going to see how that affects the man's soul. Small note, if you go read Deuteronomy 21, what he does with the kingship and his wives is explicitly forbidden. It's actually the exact definition of what God was forbidding to happen with firstborn rights. Of course, he's the product of a forbidden marriage as well. So, I don't know. It's what my daddy always believed. It's, it's, it's just what our family thinks. Hey, life's good. It's great. My job's doing fine. Worked out okay for me. Except for that third year, you know. Hey, let's keep going. in this passage, right? Right. Jeroboam's calling and say, hey, sir, sir, come, up, come with me. It's more convenient. But Rehoboam's position is also compromised. Look, it says that Rehoboam, he had all Israel with him. Remember what we've been saying? What does Israel refer to? The northern kingdom. Say northern kingdom. Northern kingdom. And Rehoboam is king of the southern kingdom. That's interesting, isn't it? it here, Israel is referring to those loyal to the Davidic dynasty. Those loyal to the Davidic dynasty as true Israel rather than the northern faction. They're calling them Israel because they are true Israelites. They're loyal to the Davidic king. Come on. They are Jews inwardly and outwardly loyal to the Davidic king. Ironically, though, it's pointing to their need for repentance as much as the northern faction. But you know what this was? Shishak's about to attack, but you know what? What that indicating attack is, if you know an attack's coming, this is God's kindness. When the Lord warns you and says that judgment is coming, that is actually kindness, and it's meant to prompt repentance in Amen. Life so that you can survive that. Let's go to verse 3. Oh. If you ever look up and you see yourself surrounded by suckites, just <laughs> repent. Let's read and see what happens when suckites show up. <laughs> Jerusalem for fear of Shishak, 
and said to them, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. Therefore, I now abandon you to Shishak. Mm. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is just. Man. Wow. What an incredible conclusion that they've come to, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I've ever met a Christian that if I said the Lord has abandoned you because you've abandoned him would do anything other than attack me verbally. <laughs> and they came to the conclusion that whatever was happening to them, the Lord is just. Amen. Man, I bet that saves lives. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His ways are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. Friends, that will save your life in the midst of adversity from the bad advice that you followed. Because the bad advice causes adversity so that adversity can draw you to repentance. You look at the goodness of God and say, He's just, I'm the one with the problem. Amen. Isaiah 26, verse 9 says, My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Amen. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Wow. Saints, he's saying that grace and kindness didn't teach them what was right, but his judgment coming upon the land did. Even in land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, he is majestic in all of his ways. But I rightly seeing the judgment of God is what causes you to see it. It's what causes you to respond to it rightly. It's not just overwhelming grace in your life or in someone else's life that you're praying might be reached. It is the judgment of God being revealed, and he is just in all his ways. Acts 17.31 is an incredible passage that we don't often think about enough. It says... For he has set a day when he will judge the world. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men. So nobody's without excuse. All men by raising him from the dead. Look, you ought not to need some kind of big warning from the Lord to get you to repent. He's already said he is going to come and judge the world. Not because he's a bad God, because he is a just God. That ought to cause you to want to cry out, I want to get right now, because he's coming. We all like to deal with the evil and other people that are around us. But when you're thinking about the coming judgment that he is going to bring, it ought to cause you to want to start with yourself. I want to get the evil out of me because he is a just God. I want to be right with him. I love when the king over Israel whether he was a good guy or a bad guy, agrees with what heaven already says. There's something beautiful about that. Mm -hmm. I want you to hear what heaven says as judgments are coming on the earth. This is Revelation 15, 3. And sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, 
and the Song of the Lamb. They co-authored it like Hall and Oates. <laughs> Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The Bible calls God's judgments his righteous acts. And when they're revealed, it turns people towards him. You want them to be revealed even in your life. Yes. I want to be corrected by my father. And I want to know when it's him correcting me. And not be a stupid charismatic blaming it on the devil. That takes away the righteous witness. See, it's so much better if you can look and acknowledge and go, this is because of my own doing. And the Lord is good to me even in this. Thank you, Lord. May I have another? The angels and the altar of God in Revelation 16 cry out that his judgments are just and true. That he is right. That he is what is holy. What we're working to do is inside of our own soul respond to the voice of heaven. Amen. To get with him and let him judge us now. Yes, Lord. 2 Corinthians 7 has been instructing us on this matter. I want to read it to you again in the context of what we're doing tonight. Even if it caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, and I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, because they accepted the judgment of God in their life and stopped shirking it and pushing it somewhere else. Yet now I am happy because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended. That was always his intention. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings about death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Amen. We are ready to see justice done in the world around us when we first accept God's justice in our own life. And it is the only path to godly sorrow. But he's teaching us this so that we can do it. So that we can get it right. So that we can stand with him and his judgments. Hey brother, what's Hebrews 10? We're going to skip that one. But as we get back into the text, look, we're learning to identify our own sin and stand with the truth of God's word over the rage of our sinful nature. There's also a few in the room that I know you. You're afraid when you see your own sin. You feel like the Lord has abandoned you. You feel like you, you're letting the Lord down, and He has let you down by you being in this situation, and that everyone else feels like you're just a big letdown. No. What we are building is the kind of father-son relationship that you have with your father, that when He shows you what's wrong... You said, man, thank you. You didn't leave me like this. You're treating me as a son and disciplining me. You're not, you're not displaying faith in who God is by beating yourself up every time your sin is revealed. You display faith when you acknowledge the truth of this word. You say, I'm wicked, but I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to get back up. This is what we're trying to produce. Hey, let's get back in verse 7 and read to verse 8. 
Hit that fourth word hard. When the Lord saw. Man, when the Lord saw. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves. Watch it. Word of the Lord came to Shimei. Catch that the Lord is watching to see how they react to his judgment. Come on. He's looking. And when he sees actions that are humble, he reacts to it. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem, though she shall, through she shall. They will, however, become subject to him, so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. But wait a second, I thought you said your wrath will not be poured out. Yeah, repentance does not avert all consequence. It just allows for life. Yeah. Your consequences are forming the life in you that you need to learn Amen. from your mistake. They will be subject to him. They're not going to be totally destroyed, but they're going to learn what it's like to serve another king so that they don't do it again. And if you understand that right, you actually see that as mercy, that God is training you. He's giving you that rod of discipline so that you don't do it again and have to go through that process. This is what causes us to cry out to the Lord. Amen. When those consequences are in your life because of your sin, it causes you to cry out and say, Lord, thank you that you're, you're teaching me through this. And Lord, I don't want to do it again. That heavy weight of your consequences is what leads you to get right and learn from your mistake. Yeah. It's not God abandoning you. It's not God's judgment on your life. It's actually his mercy on your life because he's putting guards there. Yeah. So that you can continue to walk rightly. Are y'all ready for something good? Yes. Yeah. Isn't what we've been giving you good? Yes. <laughs> Check Tricky verse pastor. 9 for me, Lil. When Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assign these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance of the royal palace. Now I said it would be good, and that's awful. That's awful. Gold is often a symbol of divinity. And now it's being replaced with bronze, a symbol of chastisement. If you will not be shielded by the divinity of your God, then because he loves you, he will shield you through the chastisement of your God. I, for one, would rather choose gold than bronze. But there's another truth in this. You could get the impression that Rehoboam didn't want anybody to know that those shields had been taken. You know, the Dome of the Rock wasn't always gold. It was more like a colored aluminum for a long time being passed off as gold. Then the king of Jordan donated the money and they made it gold. That is the devil trying to pass off an illusion and then add to it something good. The church, unfortunately, goes in reverse. God's given us gold and because we've been judged and don't want anybody to know it, we try to pretend something like the coronavirus is actually noble that we don't go to church. <laughs> That's taking the gold shield right off the wall and putting a bronze shield up and trying to pretend we're just as holy, right, and noble as we've ever been 
when the truth is, is it's the biggest conclave of cowards that Christianity has ever known. I want the actual divinity of God. If it takes being exposed as not having a gold shield, then I want that too, because it's the only way to actually get restored. But what I will not do is pretend that my bronze shield, me being under judgment and chastisement, is actually somehow golden. That's deception. Friends, there are more gold shields that have been discarded for a new bronze shield that is popular than you can imagine. In fact, I bet you could count them on church signs on this street. Hey, let's pick up in verse 11. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards went with him, bearing the shields, and afterwards they returned them to the guardian. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. Woo! Listen, if you're a good daddy and your son lies to you, you're going to whip him. If he's overwhelmingly repentant, you're still going to whip him. But the severity at which you whip him will definitely be dependent upon whether or not his heart is repentant. A consequence is necessary to prevent further sin in either case. They're experiencing that chastisement. But in Ezra's summation, there was still some good in Judah. Just like a rebellious son that is still your son and you still want him to live. The same cannot be said for the northern faction and the northern power. There is no repentance and there is no staying of total destruction. Pick up in verse 13. King Rehoboam established himself firmly in Jerusalem and continued as king. He was 41 years old when he became king and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city of the Lord, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naaman. She was an Ammonite. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Man, Rehoboam, Rehoboam got some things right. He humbled himself in times that were crucial, but he made one fatal mistake. He did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Now, I know many of you, you think of that, and you think of seeking the Lord only in times that are Tragic, only in times that the Lord's showing you that his consequences are on you. No, he didn't set his heart in seeking the Lord at all. This is not just seeking the Lord when something bad is happening like he did previously. He didn't set his heart on seeking the Lord continually. He didn't set his heart on praying through the tabernacle every day. He didn't set his heart on hearing from the Lord every day. He eventually went astray from the Lord Little by little by little, even though he presented himself as firmly established in Jerusalem and he was a reigning king. This was a downfall. Let's jump on top of something. Did y'all catch how long he reigned for? 17 years. By our reckoning, three of them were good years. Now, if those were your last three years, then there may be some hope. But it seems that they were a middle three years. Not a last three years. Guys, girls, someday it's very likely that one of us is going to do your funeral. Can you imagine if we have to summarize your life in a single statement? 
Listen to this statement. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. You ever been to a funeral where a pastor said that? Few of you have. You're at my relatives' funerals. Whether you hire somebody to lie or you get somebody to tell the truth, your life is going to be summed up in a single statement. How attentive to what that statement will be, should you be. (laughs) The southern kingdom was established by God. Leaders were appointed by God. The people attempted to worship God. And yet, what would your summary statement be? Brother attended church. So did Jeroboam. Not Rehoboam. So did Jeroboam. Well, I know he knew Jesus was Lord. Good for you. So does every demon in hell. What would your summary statement be? Rehoboam sought advice rather than the face of the Lord. Jeroboam did the same. What will you do? Well, my pastor said, well, the elder said, well, I heard some guy on TV say. Yes, but what did the Lord say to you? Well, I can't be bothered to seek the face of the Lord. That's why I got all these commentaries. I mean, I get prophecies emailed to me in my email every day. Kim Clement would never lie to me with hair like that. Saints, your life is going to be summarized in a single statement. I don't really care what people have to say about me. I care a great deal about how God would summarize my life. It drives everything that I do. I mean, everything that I do. Is the weight of that sitting on you just a little bit? We want it to, because we love you. We're confident of better things in your case. We know many of you to be seeking the face of the Lord. It's very easy to be around people who are seeking the face of the Lord and try to pass that off as what you are doing. The summary statement of his life doesn't mention the bad counsel that he got. Mm-mm. Doesn't mention the adversity that he faced. Didn't mention the shape of the kingdom when it was handed to him. Who came before him? In other words, it wasn't his daddy's fault or his mama's fault or his preacher's fault. The Lord held him accountable for one thing. Did he set his heart on seeking the face of the Lord? What have we been trying to drive you at for weeks now? And why? Is it because the way to build the biggest church would be to talk about repentance without stopping? Seeking the face of the Lord and turning away from wicked ways? No, if we wanted to build the biggest church, we'd make convenient locations and have hired entertainers as pastors. I mean, it worked for Jeroboam. It's working for half the churches on this street. Why are we going after what we're going after? Because your life is accountable to the Lord and it'll be summarized in a single statement. This is the very first king after Solomon. 
I don't think he put the nation on better footing. Can anybody honestly say that his descendants were better off than David left the kingdom for Solomon? No. No. You realize that your descendants will look to see what you did? That's why we all have disagreement. Nobody says anything bad at a funeral. It's impolite to speak bad of the dead. No, it's not. It's impolite to let their children die in the same way they did. We're trying to get your attention because we love you. We're fully aware that we could preach things that you would applaud to. But what would that do for you on the day that your life is summarized? Judah's going to finish this passage, and we have just a couple more questions for you at two hours and eight minutes. Read verse 15 and 16 for me. As for the events of Rehoboam's reign, from beginning to end, are they not written in the records of Shimei the prophet and of Edo the seer that dealt with genealogies? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. You heard the summary statement of his life. That was his lineage. Continual warfare between men that were brothers. Read verse 16. Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. That's what his son inherited. Remember, Ezra is writing this with a perspective that is clear. He's able to see the fruit. He's not in the thick of it. He is watching what happened, and he saw the result of it. Jeroboam had a relationship with the Lord, had a prophecy. He responded to it. The Lord did great things for him. Rehoboam sought the Lord. He had a relationship with the Lord, but he didn't set his heart on seeking him. Listen, the fact that the Lord has shown you numerous things, that you've started numerous uncompleted tasks from the Lord, will not give you a statement that he loved me, that he was close to me. Rehoboam's problem was that he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. He sought him many times, but that's not the same. And Ezra can see it. He has seen the Lord preserve the righteous remnant after all of these events have transpired. And he's also seen the judgment of the Lord against idolatry. He knows what it produces. When Ezra is writing about Rehoboam, he is writing about the grandson of David. My son Titus is on the front row. This is his grandfather. The distance between these two men is utter civil war, a broken kingship, and being attacked by Egypt and left barely alive and subject to him. Why? Because he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. He heard from him. He was around men who heard from him. He did some things that God told him to do, but he didn't finish his work. And between him and Titus, the kingdom has gone to hell in a handbasket and have civil war between brothers. Your whole life, may come down to whether you sought the face of the Lord enough to complete the work, to set your heart on the work, or if you were just interested in a quick fix for the problems that you've had in your life. A worldly wise man giving you the advice that you needed for a minute. Saints, our prayer this evening is that what started out in a bold contest, showing your faith that you want the Lord, would not end in utter ruin, but would end up in a kingship that was strengthened in the generations to come.
But it's entirely dependent upon whether your life can be summed up as he knew the Lord, he had experiences with the Lord, he even loved the Lord at different points in time, or he completed the work. We want to pray with you, where we actually just take stock of that. How has my walk actually been? If I wasn't here, would I still be prospering in the Lord? Or am I being supported by other people all the way around as the only reason I'm saved? Well, I love you, but I'm not sure you will be saved. And I want you to be. And I want your children to be. It is as simple as us humbling ourselves enough to set our face on him, his will, his works, his emotions, and not yielding to the carnal idolatry that is not in the churches around you, that is in your own heart. That is why you are not what you need to be. It's time that we walk as the kings that we're called to. Sons of that Davidic king that tabernacled in flesh among us to teach us how to set our face to the Lord and do exactly what he did on the earth. So, in four seconds, from the time I finish speaking, we're going to stand to our feet and pray. I want you to imagine two epitaphs. Here lies a person who sought a sympathetic ear or here will rise someone who sought the face of the Lord. Now examine your life honestly and you come to grips with which one best describes the lion's share of your activities. Not what you think your heart's intentions are. The lion's share of your activities. Would you stand to your feet?